You're listening to The Right Process, a podcast in which one writer tells the story of completing one work from concept to completion. I'm your host, Charlie Jensen. The Right Process is brought to you by the Writer's Program at UCLA Extension, helping you reach your writing goals one page at a time. Enroll now at uclaextension.edu. Hi, my name is Owen Husney, and I've written a book called Famous People Who've Met Me, a memoir by the man who discovered Prince. Owen Husney has been a top 10 recording musician, concert promoter, nightclub owner, marketer who toured with the Rolling Stones, and served as senior vice president of the Musicland Sam Goody retail chain. As an artist manager, Owen discovered Prince Rogers Nelson and signed him to Warner Brothers Records, guiding his early career and handling all worldwide marketing for Prince's launch. Over the course of his management career, Owen's artists earned 10 gold and platinum albums, and Owen himself co-supervised music for the iconic John Hughes films The Breakfast Club and Pretty in Pink. His tireless work to promote music and art earned him a Lifetime Achievement Award from the state of Minnesota. He now lives in Los Angeles, where he co-manages the estates of various recording artists. Famous People Who've Met Me is a collection of true stories starring oddball characters, behind-the-scene gurus, scoundrels, and brilliant superstars in the music business straight out of Minnesota. The unique memoir provides a true in-depth character study as told through the eyes of musician, agent, concert promoter, and manager. The stories reflect not only his crazy, sometimes dark experiences, but also his contributions to the world of music, from Elvis to Al Jarreau, Richard Harris to Yanni, Hendrix to Ktel, Prince to the Revolution. From lying his way into major record labels to possibly solving a decades-long cold case rock and roll murder, Famous People Who've Met Me relates Owen's hilarious and bizarre accounts that take place behind the music. I don't know why, but I'm one of these pack rats, and I've been taking notes and putting them in boxes since 1965 when I first got into a rock and roll band, (laughs) back in the days of horse-drawn amplifiers, I guess. And so after I moved to Los Angeles, I would start going back to my warehouse. That was my own research for doing this. And I had sort of retired from running companies and managing artists and, and all of that. So I just sort of started ruminating, you know, I'll write a book. And, you know, so at first you sit down and it's like, it was a cold and rainy night, you know, and you realize that that is like universal and it's really stupid. So then you've got to start figuring out where's your point of embarkation? Where are you going to start with this thing? Now, in a memoir, you know, they, what do they say? An autobiography is the story of your life. A memoir are stories from your life. And really, when I thought way back, when did I first get a connection with music? I was seven or eight years old. There was a plane that crashed on takeoff from the Minneapolis-St. Paul. It was called the old Will Chamberlain Airport. Crashed in a neighborhood near the airport on a hot August day where kids were out playing. How does that relate to your life? Essentially what happened was, you know, back in the 50s, you you didn't have your CNNs of the world and your everything else. So people would get it on radio, maybe some bulletins on television, you know, and I had been watching it as a kid. But when my 
when my dad came home from work, everybody was talking about it, how, what a tragedy and how horrible it was. What you did in those days is you just got in your car and drove down to the scene. That was your CNN. And it was so exciting. It was like, oh, God, we got in the car. You know, people were killed, crashed into houses. I'm, I was surprised we weren't singing camp songs on the way down there. And then as we got closer and closer and closer to the site, the reality hit me because I got the smell of the burning homes. I could smell the jet fuel. I realized that, that kids had been killed who were out playing there. And as a young kid myself, it scared the you-know-what out of me. And the closer we got, the joy was gone. And by the time we got to the site, people were just... They were pulling up on lawns. They were pulling up in driveways willy-nilly and just parking their cars and walking into the crash site. I wouldn't get out of the car. I was like seven or eight years old. The family gets out of the car. I was crying. I said, I'm not going. And they said, all right, then you stay in the car, windows up, locks down, and we'll be back in five minutes. We're just going to go look. I began to sink down in that seat. You know, the fear... What if the dead kids came up to the window? What would happen? What if they wanted me to come out and play? Your imagination. So I turned on the radio real quickly because you couldn't those days. The car could be off and you could still turn on the radio. And there was more reports of the crash. So that didn't. So I kept pushing the buttons and finally it landed on this one station. And they were playing a song. It was called The Wayward Wind by Gogi Grant. It's a very haunting song. That song made an indelible mark in my mind that I could not get out of my mind. Even, you know, to be fair to my parents, they came back in five minutes, and we drove home. No one said a word on the way back, but that song kept going over and over and over in my mind. And that was the beginning of the musician in me because it wouldn't go away until I had worked out every part and instrument in that song. I had to work out the bass line. I had to work out the guitar part, you know. I didn't know it, but that was my young musician brain starting to uh, get into music and have it take over my soul. I was running a company years later called uh, KTEL Records, and they used to sell music late at night, you know, 400 hits on one record, you know. <laughs> but wait, there's more, you know. And we acquired that song. We actually physically bought it. When I heard it come into the warehouse, I ran down, and there was the original master of that song. So I figured, okay, this is a good place to start a book. <laughs> so I first began the writing process, actually teaching. I was teaching the business of music at Extension. I didn't even really understand that I could take some courses because I was a teacher here. So I thought, well, what the heck? That kind of gave me some direction about how you start to do this. Then I took a second course taught by Harry and Judith, and that was really my launch point. Now, don't tell anybody. This is just a secret between you and me. But I started writing these stories that people were saying I should write, and I had an idea. And then I would turn them in, and then they would help me structure those stories from my life. So in essence, they were my, my, my publishing editors. Harry and Judith really, really 
helped me. It's really funny because I'd be in class. Usually I would turn in a story and he would say, hey, Owen, it's great. And you've created the scene and you've done this. But your sixth paragraph right here, that's where you're bringing us into your life. And that's where you're doing it. And so I started this joke. I'd say, okay, I'm turning in my story. Tell me which paragraph to move up, you know, first. So they were really helping me with structure. They were really helping me in terms of an arc of tension of how do you create that story? And then how do paragraphs, how do you get out of one paragraph and flow into another? This is, I knew nothing about this. And so I was just eating it up. And they were presenting it in a way that was, you know, you could just grasp it very easily. That was really, really a help. And I still maintain communication with Harry and Judith. I'll email them sporadically. Hey, I got this review here on my book. Hey, you helped me with that. I moved the fourth paragraph up to second place and then took the fourth, 15th paragraph and moved it up to the top. I actually took their class twice. I loved it so much. And just started recalling stories from my life. Elvis Presley and myself and a bed. <laughs> yeah. And it sounded funny. It was a great title. And it was about when I was really young and Elvis came into town and I lied my way into doing security and food backstage because I grew up with not a lot of money. I couldn't afford to buy these concert tickets. So I figured I can bring the artist to me and put myself in a room with them if I just start providing food backstage when they came into town. Of course, that became a story. And it was how I got to be in the room with these people, which then focused me to say, wait a minute, this is the story of my life. I'm not going to write about the Rolling Stones and then say, well, then Mick and the boys, and then we went to, uh, and that. no, I didn't want to do that. It would be through my eyes, my interpretation of what was going on in the room when I'm in with the Rolling Stones, when I'm in that room with Elvis. So... I didn't have any training. One day I, I decided to become a booking agent. I get a call, and it's from the promoter of the Elvis Presley show in 72, I think, 1972. And he said, hey, can you put a local band to open for Elvis because they didn't want competition from other major bands. So I said, yeah, I can supply a local band. And uh, by the way, uh, who's doing the food and who's doing security and who's blah, blah, blah. And he said, well, we don't have that lined up. I said, well, I do that. I've done this for all. The well, it was a lie. And I actually taught in my extension course how to lie your way into the business so no one gets hurt. Because if you're going to overpromise, you better damn well overdeliver. period. And I did. And I wind up in a room trying to get a bigger bed for Elvis because the promoter said, you know, he's going to stay here for two nights. He can't sleep on that bed. And I'm going, well, it is a king bed, you know. So that was another story I would turn in. And then that became another chapter. But you can't lie where people get hurt. And you can't lie in your book. Your book has to be the truth. You have to go even. When you think you've told the truth, you have to go even another level into the truth. When you talk about somebody that you worked with in the entertainment business like I did, you just can't give a real quick flash. You want to go deeper. And then when you think you've gone deep, you've you got to even go deeper. You, much easier to back out than try to add at the last minute. And so that was something that I learned along the way. It's what I saw, what I noticed, what I noticed about Elvis 
what I noticed about Prince when we first met. What made these people tick? So combination of the notes, telling stories, Harry and Judith, my beginning classes, and then starting to formulate in a linear fashion about my life. Then I began to write. But, you know, what you're doing in first-time writers, especially those who know nothing of what they're doing, like me, you take an attempt. And so it's like, it's kind of like getting your toe in the water and you pull it back, it's cold, and then you get scared. And you think you've written the greatest thing on earth. And then the next day you take a look at it and it looks like my third grade teacher would yell at me if I turned this in. But then I discovered something I really enjoyed. And that was the editing process. I, if you don't like it, don't become a writer. But for me, you know, in, in every class I took, every class that I still take in terms of writing, they say you have to vomit it out onto the page. You have to start someplace, so just do it. I have a friend who died. Uh, his name is Stanley Ralph Ross. He was one of the top comedy writers, wrote for a lot of the comedy shows, you know, here in Los Angeles. And he told me that when he would write a book, he just turned the monitor off on his computer. And he would just, you know, typing away. And then he would turn it on and start the editing process. So realizing that my third grade teacher would have turned down this piece that I thought was so glorious, I got into the editing process. I started throwing out some of the $10,000 words that I was trying to make myself look so great about. I started shortening sentences. I started taking that second paragraph and moving it up to the top. And then, of course, you're not disciplined. Who is disciplined to do something like that? You know, unless you have all the time in the world, nothing to do, and all the money in the world, you can't just sit down and write. So, I began to grab pieces. I'd come back from a meeting. I would grab an hour here. I would grab another hour there. After dinner, instead of turning on the television, I would take an hour. And there was a catalytic event. I had been working on the book, and there was something strange that was happening. When I would finish a chapter on someone that I had worked with in the entertainment business, they would die. And it happened three times during the process, maybe even more. I thought, well, something's going on here, and it's probably just the natural because I'm recreating the history uh, of my life. So, yeah, these people would be in their 70s and 80s, and it, and, it, and it would happen. But it was so shocking. I took a couple of days, and I thought, I just don't want to be writing anymore. I wrote about a very good friend of mine, Al Jarreau, who's a Grammy Award-winning jazz artist. And he died the week that I finished the book. I had written about another man who owned a very old record label that had a bunch of hits on it. Uh, you know, I was in the room with him, and it was a great story. He died when I finished it. And I get a call from a radio station in Minneapolis that they thought Prince had died, and I had written one chapter. The story that I had was about when we shared a $38 motel room somewhere in Fresno on the first tour for the first album, and a very strange, just a really yucky motel room that you have to do on these tours. And that was the only chapter I'd written on him. And it just shocked me completely. I'm 10 years older than him. And because I had met him when he was so young, he was like family to me. So I really wanted to write about the love I had and what I saw that was borderline magical about him. But to do that... And then to finish all the other chapters I, I had in my book, 
I had to develop a discipline. And I think that's the main part of it. And my discipline was, okay, you're going to get up. You're still going to be in your underwear. You're going to go downstairs to your office, and you're going to turn on your computer at 10 to 7, and you're going to write till 11. Oddly enough, there I was in my skivvies, uh, you know, 10 to 7 until 11 o'clock every day. And as things got more interesting and I wanted to finish them, then couldn't wait. My wife likes to go to bed early, could not wait. And then I would just run down and, and, and start writing. Interestingly enough, I thought, well, maybe I should try writing the Hemingway way. So what's that? Well, so I would sit down and have a big martini and just guzzle that thing down, and boy, it would flow. It would start flowing. Well, I think I woke up on my desk about two hours later, so that wasn't going to work. <laughs> I thought maybe about trying it the other way and doing drugs, but I knew that I would just wander off into a cornfield someplace, so I didn't do that. So for me, the best thing was to be absolutely straight in my underwear at 10 to 7 in the morning, I'll get ideas in the shower. I'll get ideas before I go to bed, and I would keep a notepad next to my desk. But really getting it all down was for the morning. And I would write, and then once I started knocking out more chapters, I would then get up at 10 to 7 and go down and kind of edit the piece a little bit, but not fully, just a little bit, and then move on. And then I would come back and rework it. Reworking your piece 10,000 times, there's nothing wrong with that. For me, the piece got better and better each time. The whole process for writing my book was probably a five-year process because you're not really into it yet. You're afraid to show it to people because they're going to be laughing out loud. Two and a half years to three years of that process was fits and starts kind of saying, oh, yeah, that happened, or picking up a note out of my book and saying, oh, that's right. I accidentally solved a cold case murder of a rock and roll star when I, oh, I got to write that chapter. And then about two years, two and a half years of my wife only looking at the back of my head while I was sitting at that computer. By April of 2016, I pretty much had a draft of the book, but I had help. Prince died in April of 2016, and I had had enough of the book done, and I had had that one chapter on Prince, and I started calling big-time publishers, and my friends in the business were recommending big-time publishers call me. Every one of them said, well, you know, your life is great, but we want the dirt on Prince. We want to tell all. I would no more do a tell-all on Prince, someone I had worked with day in and day out, who had lived with me for almost three years. I would never, no more do a tell-all than I would on my own kids. So I rejected them, and these were big-time publishers. And I made a decision to go to a smaller publisher. Now, being in the music business, there are major league labels like Warner Brothers and Sony and Universal. And then there's little indie record labels. And I had been teaching the value of a major label and of a small indie label to the kids in my class, to my students in my class, about where to bring your talent. And I thought, well, I'll apply the same thing to writing. And lo and behold, I got to this one little publisher and I think the value of that is you have to make a decision in your mind. And for me, 
I didn't want to do a tell-all, so I figured the difference between a major, a major can get your book out there in ways you've never seen before. They will make a lot of the same mistakes as anybody else. But an indie label, you're not one of 200, you know, authors. You're, in essence, their Beatles. So I purposely chose a smaller independent label, knowing full well that I would have to do a lot of the promotion and marketing myself. Uh, there is a downside to that because usually your smaller pu publishers don't have the money to bring your book home. And I was going to have to bring in some people to handle PR, to handle social media. And I recommend this for anybody, even if you just want to make a book that you know is not going to be you know, a bestseller. If that's your intent and you, you want to self-publish or work with a very small publisher, be prepared to do or bring, call out every favor and bring in someone to hand, handle social media. Instagram was great in doing that. So was Twitter. I had the luxury of having 5,000 close personal friends on Facebook. I then started an author page on Facebook as well. And then somebody told me a secret, another author. He said, if you want to know a little secret, you know, your author page, fine. Your own homepage on Facebook, fine. But get a group page and name it after your book, but make sure your name is prominent there. And then stay in contact with your group and feed them new information all the time and grow your group. And then you might hear some comments that they don't like or something because this is a group situation. You're not just putting it out there. That turned out to be very highly effective. But now, they, in essence, they could talk to me and ask me questions, and then I would feed back information. So I learned a little trick about social media. It's not just your Facebook page. It's not just your author page. Then I met another woman out of New York who was doing a lot of online stuff for people in Prince groups. So I called her up and I said, hey, how'd you like to work my book for me? And she was like thrilled to be able to do that. And then she got me into all these other groups they can be music groups, Prince groups, all of these Facebook groups. So some people might say, well, there's no worth or value to Facebook. Yeah, probably not if you just have your, you know, 200 of friends that have friended you. I had the luxury of having a large following. But development of the author page, development of the group page, having the dedicated website for people to go to and actually order the book, have, utilizing Twitter it did start to pay off. It paid off to the point where literally my first royalty check was 20 times greater than I thought it was going to be. I was finding niches that we could go into. Then we came up with hashtags that if you're not crazy about hashtags, you have 43 hashtags. We just had, you know, pound famous people who've met me hashtag. And that went out on everything. Now, not everybody gets to work with high-profile artists. And truth be told, another secret just between you and me, you know, I put a memoir by the man who discovered Prince. Yeah, that's true. It's not 100% true because Prince really discovered himself. But here's a point. Once you get your book out, you do have to be a shameless promoter. You can't be a shy person. You've got to get out there and be shameless and... and and get everybody interested in your book, figure out what's going to cause attention, pick little 
pieces out of your book and, and post them. I did that on, on Facebook. So I realize I'm combining finishing my book and talking about how I promoted it, but they're all tied in. They all, they, it, it all relates, and it's something that probably you want to think about as you're writing your book. Concentrate on your book, but think, how is this going to be relevant? How is this going to be relevant to someone in, you know, in Iowa or in New York or in Wisconsin? And you sort of have to do it that way because you're writing for others to be interested in what you're doing. The writing process in that last year, especially after Prince died, was I really, really dedicated myself to writing and got it finished. And then my publisher suggested he's a book doctor. And this was really interesting because, of course, I was, I was as good a, as F. Scott Fitzgerald. You know, nobody was going to touch. And he said, look, there's this guy. We suggest you bring him in. And I was like, well, how dare you, you know. And they said, well, just meet him. So I met him at an office they had gotten together for us in Encino. And I see this car drive up, and it's like this Toyota, probably a early 90s Toyota. And I said, that can't be the guy. And then the car pulls up, and the front headlight is hanging out. The left headlight is hanging out, and it's banging against the car, just held on by the wires. And this guy gets out of the car, and he's smoking a cigarette. And I'm going, this is who I'm supposed to be working with? This is ridiculous. He goes into the back seat of this old Toyota. He had printed out every page of my book from a PDF. And he was carrying it. And they were falling in the street. And, and it's like, oh, brother, I'm not writing this guy a penny. So we go up into the office, and they had one of those big blackboards up there. And just like Harry and Judith, he laid out every chapter. And he says, well, you've got to take this chapter and move it here. And then you've got to do the And I was insulted. And then I looked at it, and I went, he's 1 billion percent correct. It, like, opened this world to me. So here's this guy that looks like he could be asking you for a nickel on the street. And he was right on in what he did. And he said, well, okay, you wrote about all these life experiences. You wrote about Prince. You wrote about all this stuff, but you didn't write up about the breakup of Prince and what that meant to you. And how did that feel when you guys, you know, because all relationships come to an end, especially manager-artist relationships, how did that feel? And when I thought about it, it was special. Because when Prince came to me, he was living with his friend in his friend's mother's basement. And then you go through all this where we have the biggest, we signed the biggest record deal in history at that time for someone his age. And then he moved in with my uh, then wife and my dog and myself. And we lived in L.A. and San Francisco. And so our breakup was much more meaningful than Mr. Manager and, you know, the artist. And he got me to write about that. I, I thanked him profusely. He didn't really write the book. He just told me how to order. And it's really funny because we went to get a sandwich in the uh, office building. So we go downstairs and we're sitting there and these two women come up to him. And they're like, oh, aren't you so-and-so? Oh, wow, you... You're, the work you've done for people, he's very underground for famous authors in this city. And people don't like to mention him, although I did, because he was brilliant. He came over to my house. Turns out he played guitar, and so we were working on the order of the book and playing blues songs. 
And then I went to work again, and I finished it. There was a very interesting thing that happened that was totally coincidental. My publisher just randomly picked a date for the book. It turned out to be the exact same day that we released Prince's first single, Soft and Wet, off the first Warner Brothers album. Just coincidence. And so the minute we announced it, and then I started pushing it out on social media with friends and helpers, I also had a PR person in this town named Bob Merlis, who's done all the stars. I met him at Warner Brothers when he was head of publicity, and I called him up and I said, help. You know, he says, hey, I've known you for 40 years. I'll, I'll help you. Just wink, wink. And so I brought him in, and things started happening. And why did they start happening? Because obviously I had high-profile book, high-profile subject matter. And the name of the book was very unique. The title of the book was very, very unique. I think people kind of gravitated to that. When I pushed it out, even on my own page, people were like, oh, great title, great title. Now, nobody knows what your book is about, but it's a memoir by the man who discovered Prince that put it very succinctly. We just use that like crazy. I knew we had something there, but I had to get the book in people's hands. My friend, who's a PR guy, gave me a list of people. You know, he wasn't going to do it for me, but he was giving me everything great. Gave me a list of all the top people to send it to. And almost everyone that I sent the book to got back to me because Prince had only passed away within a year, and there was a lot of curiosity. So that was kind of my launch point, and I wouldn't allow it to be solely on Prince. I know that's what they wanted, but, you know, I have this whole life and a lot of other people that I worked with who were significant. So I steered all that. And also my social media person in uh, in New York, Maria, gave me uh, a list of kind of tastemakers on all these groups that are on Facebook, and I got copies to them. So I think one of the best things anybody can do in my position, which is a neophyte writer coming out with their first book, you have to do it yourself. There's no other way to do it. But start sending books out. Nobody's going to care about you. You have to get it into their hands, and you have to give them a compelling reason. And I'm an old-time marketer. I was managing an artist once, and I wanted Quincy Jones to produce her. This was in the 82, 83, something like that. And... I had to get to, how, and she was on Warner Brothers, and I, how do I get to Quincy Jones? How can I do it? And I came up with an idea to buy a Sony cassette deck, remember, 1980s, buy a Sony cassette deck, and I super glued her demo tape, the cassette, into the cassette deck, and I overnighted it him FedEx and said, just press play. That's all, that's all he had to do. Well, he sends me a letter back, and he says, applause, applause, applause. This is the most uniquely creative way anybody's ever gotten me to listen to their their artist. But there's this guy, Michael Jackson, and I've just been asked to work with him. And I I know it's going to take several years. But thank you. Very, very creative. Very good job. So I had to start thinking, how am I going to uniquely get books to people? One of the things I found out researching my book was that my grandfather and Jerry Seinfeld's grandfather were brothers. I immediately tracked down who his booking agency was or his representative agency was and got books to them. In the old days of the record business, when they actually had physical product, they used to be called free goods. Get your book into as many hands as possible. 
and develop that with your social media team. Now, I did have some luck. High-profile story. My friend Bob Merlis was able to get me onto two Sirius XM radio shows, which were major shows. That kind of started the ball rolling. You have to use whatever means you can to market. Most people figure, well, I'm going to release the book. Amazon will take care of it. People will find No, it's not going to find it's, it's not going to happen that way. You have to do it organically, but you have to set it up and push it yourself. You cannot sit back in your house. You better be out on the street. And that's where I was. I spent months doing so many uh, interviews, radio interviews. Uh, I knew that I was from Minneapolis. Prince was from Minneapolis. I knew I could even call the stations myself and promote the book and, and see if they would take an interview with me. But don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to call whatever, stations, reviewers, getting people you want. And you want to get to tastemakers if, if you can. Find out who they are. People who write. Send them a book. Who cares? The one thing that, I, that was good was everybody says, I'm going to have a hardcover. Boy, this is going to be great. I'm Joan Didion. It's going to be a big hardcover here. We made the decision to come out with a paperback and price it 20 bucks. This way you can get it into everybody's hands. And you can buy it cheap, you know, from the manufacturer, you know. It's easier to sell a $20 book from a first-time publisher than a $60 paperback or whatever it's going to be, you know. And you really want to get your writing into as many people's hands as possible. That's the – it's like get you, if you're an artist, get your music and put your music for free up on, you know, whatever it is, Spotify, or put it up for free on your own SoundCloud or whatever and get everybody listening to your music. It doesn't happen in a vacuum anymore. And you got to do it yourself. So I adapted a lot of the record business to getting my book out. And they are synonymous to a T. It's the same thing. You have a manufacturer, you have a distributor, you have to promote, publish, get it out, and it, they're identical. So I used a lot of uh, stuff that I taught in my extension course, the basics of the business of music, in uh, doing my own promotion. But, you know, I don't care who you are. You finish that book. It's a tremendous accomplishment. Most people don't. But then you got to go. That's when the work, you thought the work was writing the book? Hell no. I went everywhere, you know. And actually, I was publishing major snippets on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, because you really can't have people go to links on Instagram. But you can put a little and say, hey, it's available on Amazon in your description, you know, of who you are, that part of it. And people, a lot of people I picked up on would say, see link to Amazon in my description on Instagram. And, you know, building a following. I learned one thing in the business, too. It's good to pick one or two areas that you think will be amenable to work. You know, so for me, coming with kind of a high-profile thing, I knew Minneapolis would generate a lot of press. There's an NPR station. They're called NPR, Minnesota Public Radio. They string to NPR. And I knew if I could get an interview there, it would be picked up nationally, which which it was. So you really have to go to work, and it's a lot of legwork. You know, you probably do need to have, if you're working with an indie publisher, which most people are, get some savings together. It doesn't have to be a lot of money, but there's certain things you have to do. You should have a dedicated website, which you can link to sales and to comments and reviews and stuff like that. So, uh, boy, I went to work, I'll tell you. 
but I, I was also lucky in that I developed a 20-minute slideshow that went along with my book. And it was me from a very early age all the way on up through Discovery of Prince and afterwards. And then I would call the local bookstores. You know, it doesn't hurt to leave a copy for free at a bookstore. When I was in the record business and we had physical product and my artist was out and I got into a town, I would just move their product up to the front of the bin. Heck with it. I don't care if I got caught. I'm doing business. I got to sell. So I was dropping my book off at bookstores randomly. If I was in town, in a town, I would just go to the bookstore and drop it off there. It can't hurt. If your book sells for 20 bucks, I imagine a wholesale of seven bucks on it or something. Go get 20 books and drop them off at the bookstore. They might say, well, we don't want it or we can't order or we can't stock it because it's Amazon this or that. But get your book out there to people. Do it yourself. I sent probably 150 books out to reviewers and tastemakers. And then the call started coming in. They read the parts of the book. They enjoyed it. Some people refused to, you know, to review it. And I would also say to them, if you're going to give me a bad review, just don't review the book. <laughs> Let's just have that agreement. There was only one person out of probably 50 people that I sent it to. And I bumped into him at a party and I gave him a piece of my mind. <laughs> Actually, I didn't. I said, I said uh, you, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't even attend to my book. You wouldn't even review it. I said, I spent last night just laying on my couch, weeping openly into my curtains. And he burst out laughing. He said, all right, maybe we can do a podcast together. So you got to do anything and everything. And now Owen Husney reads from Famous People Who've Met Me. The evening wind drove the acrid smell of burning homes and jet fuel through the roll-down crack in the car window. I held my hands over my nose and mouth, but there was no escaping the terrifying stench. Through the windshield, I spotted an orange hue, no doubt fueled by an inferno of innocent souls. It danced skyward and fanned out through the nighttime sky. In the distance, I heard the constant din of sirens from ambulances, fire trucks, and police cars as they raced back and forth from the crash site. I prayed it was just a child's nightmare, that I would wake and cry out for my mother, who would then dash into my room and hold me. But I was wide awake and alone in the front seat of my father's car. This was no place for an eight-year-old kid. The day started out like any other Minnesota August day. The sun, too bright, the temperature too hot, and the morning air already thick with moisture. By late morning, the news bulletin started coming in. A Navy jet taking off from the old Wool Chamberlain Airfield in Minneapolis had left military formation to make an emergency landing. Instead, it hit the street in front of 5808 46th Avenue South, exploding into six homes and setting an entire neighborhood ablaze. The evening paper reported that 20 or more children were at play in the neighborhood when the plane crashed. They were littered with debris and flaming fuel. A child's body was found on a couch in her home. Alongside the couch was the landing gear of the plane. By dinner time. Everyone in the Twin Cities was glued to their radios, buzzing with neighbors on phone lines or watching it live on newfangled TVs. For the first time, every horrific detail of carnage was now brought directly into the home, courtesy of Camel Cigarettes. Did you hear the news, my father said, as he bounded in the door from work? 
Get the TV on quick. I've been listening to it on the car radio. But who needs radio? But I had been tethered to the TV since noon. The scorched and smoldering homes, the debris, and officials and neighbors being interviewed tugged hard on me. Looking back on it now, I see that I had identified deeply with those children. It wasn't just some adult accident like a car crash. This could have been my buddies and me. It's just horrible, my mother said, barely holding back her tears. I just keep thinking about those innocent children and what happened to them. They were just playing outdoors. And just 15 minutes away from our house, my sister added. And then and there, the family agreed. We would drive to the crash site after dinner to see for ourselves. Who needs television, my father bellowed as we headed for the car. As night fell, our spirits soared with the excitement of adventure as we piled into our brand new 56 turquoise and white Oldsmobile. It's a wonder we didn't break out into camp songs as we rolled along to the site. As we approached, I could see why the children playing outdoors were so badly hurt or killed. The neighborhood was a working-class community filled with post-war cracker box houses all squeezed together. For sure, the dense population of baby boomer kids would all be playing outdoors that warm morning. It could have been my neighborhood. It could have been my friends. It could have been me. In an instant, my excitement and curiosity turned to fear, and I understood what Mrs. Hopkins meant. My third grade teacher, Mrs. Hopkins, taught us how a bear in the wild deals with danger. When it senses a strange sound or smell, an instinctual feeling in its gut takes hold. Rising up, it surveys the landscape and sniffs the air. After fully observing its environment, the bear makes a fear-based decision, fight or flight. I asked Mr. Bear what to do, and he screamed, Run away, Owen, run away! As we drove into the crash site, there were emergency vehicles stationed on every corner, hundreds of red lights flashing and blinking in and out of sequence as far as the eye could see. A policeman was directing traffic, and he noticed me in the back seat, our eyes briefly locked. As our car drove by, he stared blankly, arms waving. I could sense his grief as the red lights reflected in his face. In the distance, I could make out the smoldering tops of scorched and burned-out homes, while the smell of charred remains and jet fuel drifted in through the open car windows. My hands grew clammy, and the sick feeling in my stomach spread throughout my body. The Right Process is hosted and curated by me, Charlie Jensen, and recorded at the UCLA Extension Studios. This season was produced by Jamie Moss. Audio support was provided by Andre Nikolaev. The Writers Program offers courses, certificates, and services that help writers achieve their writing goals one page at a time. For more information, visit writers.uclaextension.edu.